Hello, and welcome to episode 56 of the Tennis Abstract podcast. My name is Jeff Sackman from TennisAbstract.com, and with me as usual is my co-host, Carl Bialik. Hi there, Carl. Hi, Jeff. Carl is the host of the 30 Love Tennis podcast, which has so many episodes in its archive of interviews with various people from the tennis world that even though there hasn't been a new episode for several weeks now, I'm guessing you haven't listened to them all, so be sure to check those out and eagerly await the next 30 Love podcast episode. For now, you're stuck with us. So it's been a bit of a slow week in the tennis world because the ATP has been off with the exception of a couple of Group 2 Davis Cup ties, but that still leaves us plenty to talk about both with the two tournaments on the women's side and some lingering issues that we haven't touched on in previous podcasts as well as some stuff I've written. So before we get to Charleston and Monterey and the women's tennis action, I want to start by talking about the underarm serve, which I think we've... We might have touched on last week or two weeks ago with, with Curios dropping one in, and I know we've talked about it in the past. Now, Carl, you're a bit of an aficionado of, of unusual and surprising tactics, and just to get us on the same page here, you're, you're pro-underarm serve, right? I'm, I'm certainly pro-underarm serve as something that's a valid shot that it would be absurd to call for the elimination of or, or say is an affront to the game. Yeah, and we've heard some of that. Like it seems like most of the most of the Twitter comments and blog posts sort of things I've seen out there are are not so much about whether whether it's a good tactic or whether whether it will help players win. It's more about whether it should be allowed at all. I mean, it's it that doesn't make much sense to me. It sounds like you're you're on the same page there. Um I mean, is there is there any grounds for disallowing it? No, I, I could imagine if there was such a groundswell of opinion against it that you could change the rules and find a way to write it so it's not permitted. I'm, I'm trying to think of a good analogy, but I think there are some sort of sports motions where because of how you're manipulating the ball, it's not allowed, even if the outcome is is totally valid in terms of being inside the, the playing field. But no, under the present rules, I mean, the drop shot is allowed. You're allowed to pretend you're hitting a drive backhand or a deep slice backhand and, and instead hit a, a very short backhand. You're allowed to hit a drop volley. You're allowed to hit a drop half volley. Uh, what we really mean when we say underarm serve is a drop serve. Like if, if somebody hit a serve overhand that managed to also, you know, fall short and with backspin or side spin the the tactical benefit and the reaction would be similar. The tactical benefit might even possibly be greater because it would be more disguised. Yeah, and one thing that strikes me here is we're really just at the, the outset of figuring out if there's potential. I mean, people have been hitting underarm serves for a long time, some of them because they're old and they have to at the, the amateur ranks. But, I mean, Michael Chang would throw one in now and then. I, I don't know of players who who were really known for it between Michael Chang and the last couple of years. But, I mean, Mon- Monica Nicolescu threw one in on match point against Garbini Muguruza in Miami and got roundly booed for her efforts. Uh, she actually lost the point. She missed the underarm serve and then, and then lost the point and had to come back for another match point to, to put it away. But, um, but there's some potential here. And I remember reading... I've, I, don't, I have no idea where I came across this, but... Uh, reading history of tennis that pointed out that someone invented the drop shot, which 
it, in a way, it's surprising. In a way, it's inevitable. I mean, somebody had to come up with the idea to be deceptive in that way. But to think that there was at least a couple decades of competitive tennis where no one had thought, like, oh, I'm going to deceptively hit this short. And then as soon as someone did, I think it was the around 1906 or something, but don't don't trust me too much on that. Um, that player had an advantage. Eventually, everyone else picked it up, and the level of play went up. I mean, do you think there's potential here for the underarm serve to become more widespread and ultimately make certain players better or even lift the overall level of play? Yes, definitely. Um, And I I think it's a great point that every shot, not just the drop shot, had to be invented. It's not like the first tennis match featured every weapon in the arsenal that we think about today. Um, And and many invented shots were controversial at the time. the I think topspin was was considered maybe not an affront but just useless by some people when it first made its appearance. Well, and with uh, a wooden racket, it was incredibly difficult to get much topspin, so it might have been kind of useless. Yeah, I'm sure only some people were able to use it effectively. And you know, the two-handed backhand was controversial when it came into the sport. So it's it's not surprising. I I think. The, the trick with, with this shot is that, and, and, and with some of the others when they first made their appearance, I'm sure, is are you going to use it enough that it's worth getting good at doing it? So it, it's like it's a good shot to hit in certain situations if you can hit a good shot. Uh, you know, there are players we've seen suddenly realize this is, this is uh, assuming what's going on inside their head, so pardon the the um, projection here but it looks like sometimes players get into a position where of course the best shot to hit is a drop shot because they're short in the court and their opponent is is you know on their back foot way in the other side and 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 then you see the the player go for the drop shot because they know it's the right thing to do and you realize oh this is not a shot they ever hit they don't know how to hit it this is not a good decision because they can't execute it and even the underarm serves we've talked about, you mentioned Nicolescu missing, Nick Kyrgios, you know, the execution of the shot. Sometimes it's the middle of the box without that much spin. Like, this is not really something players seem to be practicing. So I don't expect it suddenly to become a very common shot just because they're going to hit some embarrassingly bad ones that are totally ineffective. But if someone really does practice it, it becomes a shot that they, when they do go to it, they know they're going to pull it off well, like you know one of their other options on serve. Then it becomes, I think, more interesting tactically. Yeah, that's a that's a good point, and it's easy to think of all sorts of examples of pretty bad drop shots and those shots making the player with them look stupid. I mean, the only thing, the, the only thing worse than not hitting a drop shot in those obvious situations is hitting a bad drop shot and giving your opponent the. the the easiest sitter imaginable and you can see that happening with with um drop serves or underarm serves as well uh on the other hand the the winning percentage for men on second serves is what like 55 percent or something like that for, for the average player maybe a little better for someone like like curios well definitely better for someone like curios since he hits so many hard ones but it, we've talked about this a lot on on the show that if you're thinking about a tactic you should use it as much as makes it that brings it into equilibrium with the alternative. So if you're winning 55% of your second serve points, 
you will want to hit so many underarm serves that you win 55% or slightly more of your underarm serve, second serves. So you can you can achieve that's true that. if you're bringing the equilibrium up. Just just to give a quick caveat, not well, if that, you're it down. That's true. Yeah. So, but I would imagine you're not going to bring the equilibrium down with a variety unless you're just really bad at the underarm serve. Like you're not going to make your your typical second serves worse by hitting underarm serves. Yes. No, th- this is just to sort of reiterate my point about execution. But yes, as long as you're basically confident at it, then probably you're going to start off better just from the element of surprise. Right. And so that means that you can afford some bad ones. Like if you're Nicolescu and you you hit an underarm serve long, then, it, I mean, it's embarrassing and it, it sucks to get booed. But uh, it doesn't mean never to do it. It doesn't mean it's a, it's, a, it's a bad choice any more than hitting a drop shot that falls short or goes falls too long, I guess. Um, means that you should never hit a drop shot. Doesn't work that way. Um, but you, you bring up a, a good point that we should be thinking about the effect on other serves as well. Like um, one thing that's that struck me. I've, I've been watching. I've been thinking a lot more lately when watching tennis about where players are standing relative to the baseline. And I mean, in women's tennis especially, a lot of players are very consistently within about one step behind the baseline pretty consistently. Um, in men's tennis, I think there's a bigger variety. But that position is really important. I mean, both for a player's comfort and how much how much aggression they can bring to bear on the next shot and so on. So if you start messing with that, then, I mean, at the very least, you're going to mentally disturb your opponent a little bit. Maybe, best case scenario, you're going to force them into some weaker returns. I mean, is that the, the main benefit of of using the underarm serve just enough to to keep your opponent out of position on all the regular serves you hit? I think if you, in fact, can take a player out of, and I'm going to say his because of your point about the WTA player standing closer, it's going to be harder to pull off the tactic. If you can take a player who usually stands really deep out of his comfort zone so he moves up because of the, the, the risk, then that's a major accomplishment. I, I wonder how often you would have to do it successfully for the for it to be worth it to the returner to shift position because even if let's say you pull off one or two it they might lose more than one or two points the rest of the match for suddenly returning from a different position than they're used to than they planned on using against you um, so so that would be what what that returner's equilibrium is is going to be a very interesting question too and in all of this I think you hinted at this. There is this question of are players even going to do what's tactically optimal or are they going to do what's optimal in terms of minimizing their embarrassment? Like maybe the returner does move up earlier than he should because it just felt so crappy to to be aced on an underarm serve. So if you can actually get inside a player's head and make them do something that is counter to their interests, that's a big win tactically. Yeah, and the more I think about it, the more I think that the – you don't need to use it very often. I mean, just just putting the idea... Like it, it's the, the way that a lot of players uh, will will go for a serve and volley on, at 40 love or something like that. Like, Gil Malfi's springs to mind as someone who doesn't really serve and volley, but he'll do it a lot when it doesn't matter, just to kind of keep it in your head that he might come up. Most points don't matter that much. This is a, a theme we come back to a lot uh, talking about, about tactics, is if, if you were to give up 
one underarm serve point per match. As a returner, you're thinking, you know what, I'm not going to bother coming in. I'm just going to let him win this one point. Over the course of a 150-point match, on average, that point doesn't matter. But if you're playing Kyrio, someone who seems to understand very well when he needs to, to put his best tennis forward, um, Kyrgios knows that he should be he should be playing those sorts of games when the points matter the most. So you might not worry yet, you know, 15 love or something about adjusting your return stance, but if he has put the idea in your head, then at, I don't know, at, at deuce or, or, or at, at out or something, that's when you're starting to worry that he's going to throw it at you. And so maybe that means that even if you don't adjust your return position very much, you'll be you'll be thinking more about returning it in the points that matter most, thus affecting your return percentage when the points are really important. I mean, it, it doesn't take much or even like a, a general 100% of points adjustment to really mess with a returner's mindset, right? Yeah, that's true. I, You know, I, we've talked before about how when someone, let's say you, creates something that's like an incredible crowdsourced effort to chart matches, let's say the match charting project, they don't necessarily end up including every possible uh, choice for, for charting shots. And I'm not saying if you created it today, you would add in a choice for underarm shots, but it would be interesting for this conversation if we could pull up like every underarm serve and and check who um, what, what the situation was when they hit it. And I agree that if, if you if you know it's a possibility on big points, like match points, like Nicolescu did, uh, then you're going to be alert maybe more than the, the number of underarm serves would suggest you would be. My memory without the charting data of when Kyrgios does this is that he actually doesn't do it on big, at big moments. That's more the Monfils, like 40 love, like, hey, remember... That this, that this might happen. And maybe that's enough. Maybe that still makes people think that it could happen on Deuce, even if it almost never does. But again, I'm just going off a memory of just a couple of examples. And it would be consistent with Curious's approach to big points to, to do something like this on a big point at least once to make the other big points more advantageous for himself. Yeah. And in the case of the underarm serve, it's so rare and so notable when it happens that we might not need something like the match charting project unless it becomes a lot more popular. You can probably get a, a pretty good representation of all the underarm serves that have happened in the last few years just by Googling underarm serve or underhanded serve and seeing which news stories pop up. Um, it might be harder to figure out the exact moment that they happen. So I guess that there's that point to consider. Um, I, I do know that part of the reason I wanted to talk about this again this week is in the Monterey Challenger, uh, Alexander Bublik, who's, I mean, an, another player kind of in the curious mode, at least generally speaking, he was playing, I think it was a first set tiebreak, maybe a second set tiebreak against Feliciano Lopez. He threw an underarm serve into the tiebreak. Uh, I think he won that point. He came back to win the tiebreak and win the match. Uh, the quick little recap I read of that suggested that that kind of discombobulated Feliciano Lopez and attributed the loss or attributed Bublik's win in part to the underarm serve. That might be overstating the case, but I can see how if you do lose a point, something like that, at, at, a, at a key moment in a match you think you're headed towards winning, that would be pretty disconcerting, especially for someone like Feliciano Lopez, who's been playing professional tennis for 20 years and may never have dealt with that sequence of events before. Uh, I have a question. Be, yeah. 
we've we've thrown out three names, I think, now for this. I think we should at least choose what we're going to call it, even if it's not what everyone else will. Is it an underarm serve, an underhanded serve, or a drop serve? I feel like in general it should be an underarm serve. Like underhanded makes it sound uh, possibly illegal or right. at least unethical. Uh, and drop serve seems like a subset of underarm serves. Like Nicolescu's attempt went long, actually. So it wasn't, I mean, it would have been difficult to return, but it, it wasn't much more of a drop serve than just a really weak overhand serve. Uh, Gotcha. Yeah, like underarm serve yeah. describes the mechanics and drop serve describes the tactic, I guess. And um, yeah, you could imagine drop serves that aren't underarm and underarm that aren't drop. So I guess they're they're cousins. It also makes it a little bit closer lexically to the sidearm serve, which is basically what Sarah Arani does. Yes. With and she's another, she's another one who's thrown in a couple underarms over the years. I mean, these days with her double fall rage, she should probably be trying just about everything. Yeah, I'd, maybe she is. Maybe that's driving the double fall rate. Yeah, we got to watch more Rami. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, as with Nicolescu, there's limited opportunities. With I think Nicolescu retired in the final qualifying round in Monterey, maybe the second qualifying round. So that's too bad. We don't get to talk about anything she did this week on clay. But feels like a good segue to get into talking about the actual tennis on actual courts this past week. Um, and it, I mentioned the Monterey Challenger. There was a, a coincident Monterey WTA International event as well, still on hard court, so it feels a, a little bit out of place. Um, it ended up going to Garbini Muguruza, who beat Victoria Azarenka. Azarenka had to had to retire in the final, but it was still a, a big accomplishment from her. It was her first final since coming back from from having her baby. Um, and she looked pretty strong beating Angelique Kerber in the semifinal. But I mostly want to talk about the start of the clay season in Charleston, where Madison Keys won that title and beating Caroline Wozniacki in the final. Interesting to note, Muguruza and Keys both had not yet won titles this year, so we're still on this streak with no two-time winners on the WTA Tour. I think we're up to 18. Uh, pretty amazing stuff. It's got to end one of these days. But Yeah, who do you think talk... will be the first to win a second title? Well, it's got to be Simona Halep in Stuttgart. <laughs> okay, always. What about Sabalenka and her you know, 12 titles in a row coming up? I guess it won't start on clay. Yeah, I'm starting to worry that's not going to happen on clay. Uh, I haven't looked at who's in the draws in Lugano and Bogota this week, the two internationals with with relatively weak draws, not a lot of stars in play, but I'm not sure if any of the the past winners are in the mix because it seems like a decent opportunity that if someone someone who's been rather hot this season could could come back and, and win another another relatively easy one but if if no one does this week then clearly it's Simona in Stuttgart and then probably right after Wimbledon Arena Sabalenka is going to to make tennis pointless for the rest of the tour literally she's going to win all the points at every event all the points yeah I don't think the WTA point structure would allow for that that would be tricky so 
Madison Keys. When we talk about Clay Cortez, we're usually thinking about about grinders, about long rallies, players who aren't relying as much on on big serves, first strike tennis. And Madison Keys does not fit that mold at all. I mean, big serve, big ground strokes, lots of aggression on the return, and we saw all that, especially the return aggression in the Charleston final. I'm I'm curious, Carl. Like, do, do you think this is this is generally true of the WTA that the sort of clay court grinding of Nadal and Ferrer that we normally associate with the surface, does that apply to the WTA? Well, we talked earlier about Zara Arani, and I mean, I think she was the much less aggressive WTA version of Ferrer for a couple of years, and it, and it was effective on clay. But yeah, maybe maybe she's more the exception, because when we think of the most... Uh, defensive, I guess the least aggressive WTA players based on some of the metrics you've put out, they haven't, other than Halep, they haven't been um, disproportionately successful on clay, and some of them have clearly been less successful on clay, including Wozniacki. Yeah, I mean, Wozniacki is the, of the top players, I think Wozniacki is the least aggressive or or most counterpunching, and I did see an interesting stat pop up on Twitter that Wozniacki has four career clay titles, and there aren't very many active women with more. But then again, she's had a lot of opportunities and not never done much at the French Open. Um, but then some other players, like Svitolina's had some success on clay, but maybe not as much as we'd expect. Um, Agnieszka Radvanska was never that comfortable on clay. Those are other players who come out pretty extreme in, in the aggression score. I was also thinking so, of Kerber, although, you know, she's had some success on clay, too, but she hasn't. It's not her best surface. No, I mean, Kerber's, a, I think she's a little bit more aggressive than than Halib, but definitely in the, the closer to a counterpuncher than, a, than, than an aggressor. Uh, I mean, I think part of the problem is that it's easy to put players in categories like this, but like, I, I, almost everyone on the WTA Tour has become more aggressive um i mean kerber can be pretty passive halep can be pretty passive but they're always looking for opportunities and they're they don't have the time or the opportunity to build a seven or eight shot point and and construct an opportunity to to hit a winner like someone like gabriella 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 sabatini whose name apparently i can't say did a few decades ago just because if they wait that long, then the point's going to end without them. Maybe they'll get lucky and they'll have an opponent who will miss in the meantime. But generally, you've got to take your shot before before that happens. Uh, I mean, do you think that... So Madison Keese has had some success on, on clay over the years. I, I saw another tweet that pointed out that she's had I mean, pretty even success across surfaces. She She doesn't really have a weak surface even though you'd think of her as more of a a hard quarter with her U.S. Open final. But do you think there's anything in particular about her game style that works for Clay? I mean, I think probably a big factor for a lot of players that's not readily apparent just from the style is just how comfortably they move. And she does seem comfortable moving. I, I don't know how far back that goes and how early in her development she was, she was uh, testing the, the very different experience of trying to move on clay, but she looks pretty natural. And that's, 
that's saying a lot for an American that, you know, then again, her, her friend and, and often rival Sloane Stevens has made the French Open final on clay last year, beating keys in the semi. So it's, it's, she's not the only one and Serena Williams has had success on clay, but many Americans growing up on hard courts don't seem as comfortable. So I guess for me, it stands out because she's an American. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it, it is a bit surprising that you have so many American women who have been able to make the adjustment and it's not at all true of American men. You know, we've, we like to bring up John Isner's surprising wins and almost wins on clay, but Apart from that, it's it's not that great of a, a track record for the American men. Um, so maybe that is more to do with the the playing style. Like you can you can grow up as an aggressive player as a girl, and like that style will translate over to to WTA success on clay. But if if you grow up as a, a first strike type player like Sam Querrey. Uh, as a boy, then that isn't going to develop into skills you can really apply when it comes to Monte Carlo and Rome and tournaments like that. Um, do you think that that the really big return aggression is it, is that always going to be a valid tactic on clay, like we saw from from Keys yesterday? Well, I guess one one big question I have is. What do we mean by clay? So partly that's facetious because Charleston is is sometimes considered like half clay because it's not European red clay. Um, but but genuinely, I do wonder like how how much variance there is in this surface. And what I mean by that is, you know, when you've done numbers on court speed, you found hard courts that are slower than most clay courts and clay courts that are faster than most hard courts. So. Um, you know, return, can return aggression work always on clay? I think it would depend somewhat on the speed and that maybe on the very slowest courts, it, the risk is not rewarded sufficiently. Yeah, that, that is a good point. And I, I wonder, I, I, I haven't run as many surface speed numbers for women's tournaments, so I don't think I have any numbers handy for Charleston. Uh, the very, like my, my surface speed ratings rely entirely on ace percentage and there's not as much variety in ace percentage from tournament to tournament so uh, on the WTA side as there is in the ATP side so I don't think the it's as easy to differentiate between speed level using that proxy it doesn't mean there isn't a difference in speed level of course there is but um, it's just tougher to see it with the numbers that we have um, but that's that's definitely a valid point and it it does seem like the the sorts of tactics we saw from Madison to win yesterday might not translate to Rome. Although saying that, uh, Madison Keys made a Rome final uh, a few years ago, and I, I doubt she was changing her playing style that much. I don't remember anything from those matches. Just the fact that she she reached the final. But it's it's interesting to keep in mind since Rome is always the tournament that sticks out as the the really slow clay of the WTA circuit. Um, but we've got Madison as a, a, an aggressive player made good. We also have Monica Puig, who made the semifinal in Charleston, um, beating Sabalenka along the way. But then again, we also have Irene Sabalenka, very big hitter, who has struggled on clay. Maybe she'll turn that around. But, I mean, there's other examples of, of, of ball bashers who 
who aren't comfortable on clay courts. I mean, beyond just being uh, being comfortable with the footing or having experience on the surface, do you think that there's like variations in ball bashing tactics that can that can work and others that don't? I mean, is there, is there if 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 you had Sabalenka's ear and you were trying to direct her talent in a way to win clay court matches, is there something you could tell her? Well, I think. Two of the players you highlighted, Kvitova and Ostapenko, my memory of watching them and also my memory of your your stats on them is that even among aggressive players, they are extreme. And that suggests that maybe there's just like a level of risk at which it doesn't matter what the surface is. You can still um, win a point outright with shots if you're willing to, to tolerate that level of, of error. And... So that could be a tactic. Uh, on the other hand, I was thinking more about Keys and your point that she's great. She's you know equally accomplished on just about every surface, and even within that clay spectrum, I was I was describing you know as you pointed out, she has the Rome final, she has the French Open semi last year. So maybe we don't give her enough credit for adjusting on different surfaces. Like maybe she isn't. You know, we use the term ball basher for aggressor just as like another phrase to use, but maybe she um, mixes things, maybe she is mixing things up in a way that's not obvious from watching her. I mean, she did throw in occasional slices and come to net more than I expected in the final. Uh, So I don't know, maybe maybe she's finding a way to adjust her game because I don't think she's in the same category of aggression as Ostapenko and Kvitova. No, she's definitely not, and partly that's because very few people are. Um, I, I, I wrote something about this, I think, during the Australian Open and highlighted Diana Yastremska, uh, because Yastremska is one of the few women who's in that same category with Ostapenko and Petra Kvitova, and Sabalenka is another one. But they're, I don't remember what it is in standard deviations, but they're way off from the norm. Like, they, they really are just going for winners on almost every shot and Madison Keys is I think she's she's still in the top third of of aggression but is I mean apart from the return aggression we saw yesterday she's a lot more willing to to let points play out and I was trying to think about how to to quantify some of this stuff and maybe I'll be able to to churn out some some research on this this week. I was just thinking with the with a pretty deep data set of of charted matches among current top players. The interesting thing would be to find pairs of players for whom we have a hardcore match and a clay court match. And I mean I don't want to just take like Madison Keys on hard versus Madison Keys on clay because stats like return winners and rally length and things like that, they'll vary so much based on your opponent and controlling for that would, would get messy. And I think the resulting, uh, the resulting numbers wouldn't be as trustworthy. But if we were to compare a keys Wozniacki match from Charleston to a keys Wozniacki match from the U S open or Cincinnati or something, if, if we had that, then that seems like a valid comparison to see how tactics change from surface to surface. And maybe if we found a few dozen pairs of players like that, we could start getting a better grip on, on how things change. And I wonder what, what you would predict. Like, do you think that some of these indicators like 
unreturned serves, return winners, um, rally length, just indicators of the style of play would would vary very much between hard and clay courts for these consistent pairs of players? Ooh. Do we know the answer yet? No, we don't know the answer. <laughs> um, I don't know, and I'd, I'd love to sort of watch that develop over the course of a match, too, for the, for the later match. Like, do, does it start out kind of reset and then, and then shift um, as, as you adjust and, and realize? Like, I think there's some unconscious adjustment throughout matches. And you had that start, that uh, post or section of a post recently about like a change during a match, and that made me really interested in in what those dynamics are generally, or was that just a fluke? I don't remember what that was at all. Oh, uh, with Lorenzi and Harrison maybe at the New York Open. Oh, I only now even vaguely remember it. Um, yeah, I don't. I don't know. Um. So yeah, we'll we'll have to do the research and, and see how that comes out. I mean, after watching Madison Keys on clay yesterday, maybe it is because it is a, a faster clay surface, but I find it hard to imagine that the the indicators of playing style like rally length would be that different from from surface to surface. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think, and, and part of wrong. the analysis that would be interesting is just who are the outliers, like who really does seem to adjust if we, if we can find all the controls we want yeah and that's the tricky thing is i i think some of the outliers especially in the wta side would be players who aren't at the very top of the game like i can't think of anyone in the top 10 or top 20 who really sticks out or someone who changes their playing style a lot from surface to surface um i mean maybe if, if you if you if we had enough data for someone like Irani, maybe she is able to impose the more grinding style on matches. But on the other hand, like this is something that I was thinking watching Keys deal with the Wozniacki serve. Irani's like, serve is pretty puffball no matter what the surface is. But if you've got the surface slowing it down even more with um, with the bounce sticking a little bit more, then you're making it even easier for someone to attack that serve. So. It, it might even be counterproductive. Like it might it, it might end up creating more return winners, shorter rally length. Uh, the only real difference in the in what you'd see in playing styles would come once you get into a rally. Once you get to maybe four or five shots, you'd predict longer rallies. But a, a lot of WTA matchups are rarely getting that far, regardless of the surface. You know, we've talked about how. Decades ago, WTA matches had much longer rally length, especially on slow surfaces. And it does make me wonder, We have so, you've done such a good job of getting charting done for slam finals. And what can we see from Everett and Avertilova matches and how they varied? Yeah, that's, I'd love to dig into that more. And hopefully there's enough data to some of the research I was just talking about. Hopefully we could extend that back to some of the, the famous matchups in the past as well. Um, but I've been struck charting a number of old, old matches, not just, not just clay matches from the late eighties and nineties. Um, just how, how difficult it was for the players to hit through each other. Um, like watching Sabatini, especially like really hitting hard, a lot of shots. I mean, there's occasional moonballing, but there's not much moonballing. Um, Chris Everett wasn't 
slugging away like Sabatini was, but she was she was hitting a lot of sharp angles. She was definitely trying to create opportunities, but probably because of the racket technology, they just didn't have the ability to hit through each other. So almost every point had to be constructed. And I've seen matches recently where the average rally length was eight, nine shots per point. And a lot of the matches we're talking about these days, they might not have a single point get into double-digit shots. So, I mean, it's just a, a, a totally, totally different style. Uh, that seems like something that would be a lot more susceptible to differences in surface. But on the other hand, like you get really long rallies in hardcore matches from back in that era as well. So maybe if, if you've got Everton and Evertilova winning, winning tournaments on every surface back then too, maybe there wasn't so much of a difference then either. Uh, I think we, we have a lot more data to collect and analysis to do on it before we can get answers to those questions. But I think that a lot of the things we assume about surface preferences, just to kind of wrap this all up, like I, I think they haven't really been investigated very much. Like we assume that we know what how clay changes professional tennis, but I don't think we really do know that, especially when it comes to the tactics the players can use to win matches. I when you said some, how like you can't think of top 10 or 20 players who do change tactics by surface and I can't really disagree it, it made me think of the kind of cliche you often hear of the best players have their game and they focus on their game and if they're playing their game well they win and that that's kind of generally what it takes to be in the top 10 or 20 that we don't see too many who have gotten there because they are able to like shift games dramatically depending on the circumstances um because generally if your game is good enough you don't need to i don't know something like something like that i mean i'm thinking that you'd still want to have both in your arsenal you'd want to have a great b game and c game too and maybe b is for is for grass and and c is for clay but in general it does seem like there's this mindset among the very top players of i know that if i can execute my top game i'm gonna win 90 something percent of the time yeah, I, it's interesting. That I, th- I think that's true for most or maybe even all of the top women. It doesn't seem as true for the top men. And maybe it's because for for Nadal, for instance, winning 90 or 95% of the time isn't good enough. Like to, to in, improve on his career records, he needs to do better than that. And that means beating top players on hard and grass. So we've seen him very consciously and deliberately change his tactics and even his serve to, to make him better suited for different surfaces. Uh, but in general, I think that's, that's, that's true that the players feel like you kind of, you, you got to stick with who you brought to the dance. <laughs> Can you think of other examples besides Nadal? Cause you said that I'm like, Oh yeah, you're right. It is different in ATP. And then I struggled to think of a second or a third, um, good example. Yeah. There, there's no, there's nothing as dramatic. Um, I think if if you dug into the numbers, you'd probably find more players who are at least sub- subtly changing tactics. I mean, we we heard Murray talk a lot about getting more comfortable on clay for years. I don't know how much that would show up in the numbers. Um, but I wonder if maybe it's more clay court players have to adjust to faster surfaces. Like you, you can bring a hard court game to a clay court and still do okay, as John Isner can tell you. Um, if you bring a clay court game to a hard court, 
then, I mean, you'll be okay, but there's only so far you can go. Most Maybe just because most of your opponents are more comfortable on hard courts. So maybe if you looked into Diego Schwartzman's history, you'd find that he's he's gotten more aggressive over the years from when he was playing mostly South American clay court challengers to now that he's playing seasons that are two-thirds faster surfaces. And maybe on the women's side, there aren't as many players who are... I mean, there's certainly not as many players you think of as clay court specialists. Um, maybe that means there are fewer who grew up on clay courts. I'm not sure. Uh, but that could be a factor as well. Certainly, we've, we've had a, a pretty steady stream of top men who are clay quarters first and foremost. It just struck me how funny the expression grew up on clay courts is, and I'm sure I've used it a hundred times, but now I'm picturing like a house built on a clay court and you've got to like get used to walking around on clay to get your milk in the morning. And that, that would be the next Nadal, I think, if someone really grew up on a clay court. Well, I'm assuming that's how Nadal grew up, right? You know, maybe it was literal all this time and I was taking it too metaphorically. Have you seen that? There's a famous Onion article from... Maybe it's a decade ago now, but it, it, I think it has an interview with Nadal talking about how he has his 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 breakfast shake made of clay and uh, just everything in his life is is all clay. The wonderful life giving surface. <laughs> that sounds also like the um, the Grantland story about Federer's Federer like describing his breakfast. I think which then had a Nadal follow up, which was in that same vein. Okay. So yeah, if you, if, if you haven't seen that Onion article, it's worth checking out. It's pretty ridiculous. I think, like I say, I think it's quite old. It goes back into the the days where Nadal was, was dominating the French, but not quite as much of a factor on everything else yet. Um, I didn't realize we'd be talking about Nadal quite so much, but he works as a great segue for the last big topic I wanted to get into this week, which is projecting young players specifically Feliz Auger Aliassime. I know we talked about him some last week, but I'm, I'm sure this will not be the last time that we have a lot to say about him. I wrote something on the Tennis Abstract blog, I think it was Thursday, late last week, following up on some research I also did with women. And what I, what I did was calculate players' ELOs at the end of each season of their career, um, put that in terms of their age, and see what aging curves look like for... for ATP players. When I did it a couple weeks ago for women, I was focusing on Bianca Andreescu, another extremely promising 18-year-old. And what I discovered was that throughout throughout the last 30 years or so in the WTA, players are all, still peaking at the same age, around 23 or 24. They're, they're maybe remaining close to their peak longer. But the striking thing is that what, if you break in as a successful player in your teens, you are likely to improve, but there's a limit to how much you improve. You I know, mean, a lot of women arrive on tour, maybe not fully formed, but close to fully formed, as we're possibly seeing with Andreescu. So what I, what I found, what all this is building up to, is the typical 18-year-old is 70 ELO points away from their, their career peak. So Andreescu right now is in the low 2000s somewhere, so we might project a peak for her around... 2100 or 2150, which is great, but not greatest of all time. So I redid the whole thing for for men with a specific focus on Feliz Ajayali Asim. And 
as you might expect, since there aren't as many super successful teenage men, especially these days, the difference was huge. So for one thing, the typical ATP peak is quite a bit later, at least a couple of years later, and is maybe a year or two later than that more recently. So we're looking at players peaking around 26, 27, maybe even 28, and staying near that peak until at least 30, 29, 30, maybe even a little later than that. And the difference between players who are on tour at 18 and their peak is enormous. So I, I, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but over the last 30 years, it's something like 270 ELO points. So Feliz Ajayali Seam right now is around 30th in the world in ELO. He's at 1840 or 1850 or something. That number suggests he'll be in the low 2100s, which right now would make him... I think number one in the world in ELO. So that's, it might be 10 years away, but that's his peak. I mean, it's a, a really big difference from, uh, from where he is now. And uh, he would be behind the big three. That's what you wrote, but, but ahead of everybody. He would be behind else. the big three now? Yes. Okay. Yeah, they're so all 2150 or higher right now. Oh, okay. So then I, okay. And then did I do, um, I, I ran the numbers again, looking at only only the the most recent cohort of players and found that their difference from age 18 to their peak was even greater. Right. I think that. Yes, exactly. So, so if we think that the more recent players are more indicative of how much improvement an 18-year-old has to look forward to, then we're projecting Felix into the low 2200s, I think. Yep. Uh, so long story short, the numbers are saying very few 18-year-olds are at or near their peak on the men's side, your typical 18-year-old who is playing enough matches to have uh, an ELO rating, which in, in according to my rules is, is 20 tour, tour qualifying, or challenger matches, they have a long way to go before they hit their peak. I think even Alexander Zverev, who was also very good as an 18-year-old, he was a few hundred points away from where he is now. So he's already built tremendously on where he was as an 18-year-old. So, Carl, I'm curious. I mean, it, it, from what you've seen from from Ajay Ali Asim so far, in, it, it, is this plausible? I think last week I asked you, do, do we see him as a future number one? I think this is another way of phrasing that question. I mean, do we think there's another 270 or 300 plus ELO points for him to climb from where he is right now? Well, I think you're right that Nadal was a good segue because, um, you know, I know he didn't show up as, as exactly the antecedent you were looking for, but sort of doing the um sorry no go ahead yeah i mean he's he's on the list at least of some of the players who are closest to to felix at age 18 and he doesn't he didn't look anything like he did obviously in terms of success but also just in terms of what he was able to develop his game into nadal is you know a, a once in a well maybe three times in a generation and three times in history kind of tennis player on the men's side so it's it would be very optimistic to project that kind of growth but um you know can felix develop into something that's very different and much better and uh, much more versatile even than what he's already done yeah i think i think he certainly can we have recent uh, history to to show us an example so the the next step of this of this ongoing research project into aging which i'd hoped to publish last week but 
it ended up being more complicated than I thought, was breaking out aging patterns based on playing style. Because we've talked about this on a few recent podcasts that I think we we ex- we think that this is great. I think that we think <laughs> that um, that aging curves are different for different types of players. So maybe maybe we have someone like Diego Schwartzman in mind who is at their peak now or maybe still yet to reach it. He's been improving for a decade because he he has this more more physical game that he has more skills to develop. Whereas someone like John Isner, Riley Opelka, a lot of what they have to offer they can do when they arrive on tour. I mean, Isner's a, a tricky example because he wasn't a regular tour player until he was 23 years old, I think. So he doesn't quite fit into this conversation, but the, the concept is there. So, I mean, do, do you think that... I guess the first question, do you think we should expect aging patterns to be different based on playing style? Uh, this feels like a trap because I think this... <laughs> I mean, it's not a really high stakes trap because looking stupid about tennis projections is, you know, could make you the most successful commentator in the world. But yeah, and we only have four listeners, all four of whom are super nice. <laughs> oh, love you listeners. Um, but, you know, it seems like if we're saying what would we think if we had never seen some of the work you've already done in this space and if we haven't talked about it before? Yeah, I think we'd probably think that the big the serve dominant players arrive fully formed so there isn't as much room for improvement but they also maybe decay more slowly decay is a gross word but maybe maybe their skills <laughs> decline. decline more slowly um because they do not take as much of a beating i mean there is this sense of like it's not so much just how many years you've played, but it's how many matches. And it's not even just how many matches, but how many points. And it's not even just how many points, but how many shots did you have to hit and all the toll that takes relative to just, okay, you were on tour for a year, but you know, most of your rallies were under two shots. Um, so, so yeah, that's, that's the, that they have a flatter curve on both ends, the, the serve dominant players. That to me feels like my prior uh, belief on how this aging would differ by playing style. What about you? Yeah, that's exactly what what I expected as well, and and I think we I think we've talked about that and basically made that explicit before. So so in our our show notes, I broke it down to three questions. Like the first one is if you're comparing, like, I'm just calling them return dominant players versus serve dominant players. And return dominance a really misleading kind of useless term. I really just mean players who aren't big servers. But if we're comparing those two. Um, first question is who has the later peak? Would you have a, a feeling on that? Uh, I guess serve dominant, although that, that feels fuzzier because if the curve is flatter, it's, it's like harder to, to place the peak and there'd be more noise. Yeah. I, I, I feel the same way. I mean, I, I do have preliminary answers to some of these questions and I'll, I'll get there soon. Um, but that's the first question. So we're thinking that the servers might, might peak a little later. Um, and then you already answered the question about the, the shape of the curve. You're thinking that the curve is flatter before the peak and after the peak. So if it, let's just say hypothetically, Auger Aliasim and Riley Opelka were exactly the same age right now and exactly the same ELO rating. We would expect 
Ajay Ali is seen to have more room for growth and probably have a better career peak than Opelka. This is why I always try to say things like skills or results have more room for growth because you're just setting up some kind of tall joke by saying more room for growth. Yes. In every sense, <laughs> I think Felix in that scenario would have more room for growth, but then would also decline earlier. Uh, or, or I think okay. that's what my prior belief is. I suspect that none of these are going to be quite right if we're playing this game. Well, it's it's a mix, and and I'm not I'm not setting this all up as a as a gotcha. I, I it's more because I need to do a better job in general of just making sure I know what my priors are. Like I tend to just dive into the data and come up with some interesting numbers, and then try to be honest about what I expected, <laughs> but. It's tough to be truly honest about what you expected when you already know what you found. So I'm I'm using you as as my my honest backstop kind of. Uh, it's like I'm trying to remember what Jeff thought before he crunched it. <laughs> exactly. So if, if if there's any like tennis abstract podcast archivists who want to want to correct us, please do. So okay, I, I've got I've got a graph that I was hoping was going to go into a blog post, but it's it's going to be more complicated. What I did was for for every player with five seasons of twenty or more matches, tour tour qualifying challengers, um, those are the players I'm looking at. I found their elos at the end of every season, and I broke those players into three categories based on their career serve points one divided by career return points one. So the one category is the the biggest ratio, so the most serve dominant. A third category was the middle. A, th- a second category is the middle. Third category was the ones who were the most return dominant. Um, and what we get is peak doesn't really matter that much. Um, the returners peak at I think it's twenty four. The the servers peak at twenty five, and the the middle group peaks at 26 that might be off by one um looking at not a great graph thanks to microsoft excel and my own lack of skills but not a huge difference in peak i just Um, occurred to me what a good format podcasts are for describing graphs (laughs) yeah i can't think of any other way to disseminate this graph other than (laughs) describing it on a podcast uh but the, the the and you are right, and I believe my prior was right, that servers hang on better. So even either the two groups, they're, they're within maybe 50 ELO points of their career peak until age 33 or age 34. And that's with the usual caveat that we're looking at players who stay on tour. Um, the ones who don't, I mean, presumably they'd be playing worse. We don't know. We can't factor those in. But the same limitations apply to everybody. The shocker is the the ascent so the difference between 18 year old or 19 year old elo and peak elo for servers is way bigger than it is for the the returners or the middle group so that the difference for the average player between 18 year old elo and peak elo is something like 150 points um for returners it's more like 100 points. It's it, it it's a pretty noticeable difference. And, you know, if we're all looking at the graph, you'd be able to see a lot more clearly than me describing it as we've established. But point being, servers seem to have more room for growth. The tricky aspect to this, which is why I haven't published this yet, is, as I've mentioned, I'm looking at career stats. 
partly because a lot of these players I don't have serve and I don't have match stats for them when they were 18 or 19 years old just because we haven't been collecting those those numbers um, in the 80s for tour level players or until 2010 for challengers or qualifiers um, so we the data set gets gets hamstrung a lot when we when we limit to the style players are playing at age 18 or age 19 but there you have it it seems like the the conventional wisdom is upset at least a little bit uh, we expect the bigger servers to have more room to grow um, in a non-pun intended kind of a way. That's really interesting. Yeah, and I mean, some of them would presumably, you would just get data on them earlier because with a serve, with a really big serve, they would be able to comp- at least like have respectable scores earlier. So maybe like they show up in the data earlier. Is there anything to that? Yeah, that could be. Um, I mean, it, 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 we've talked multiple times in the past that it's it seems like big servers so that in the extreme Opelka mode, like, they can win close to 50% of matches just by winning their service games. Uh, so maybe someone who's as good as Opelka can't win as many matches if they're more in the Diego Schwartzman mold. So they're not going to get as many matches, uh, and they won't show up in the data. You're right. Um, I have no idea how we'd be able to control for that. That I mean, that's the tricky thing about this aging curve stuff on both the the younger edge of the of the curve and the older edge of the curve, because the the number of players isn't consistent. You know, the number of 18 year olds in this data, especially in recent years, just isn't that many. So every single claim we make has to be based on this of the players who are included in the data set or of the players who played a full season at age 18. Uh, we know what happens to them. And maybe for some players, that's an appropriate way to do it. But it doesn't tell us anything about players who aren't quite good enough or are still toiling away at, at futures. Like I mentioned in the WTA article that uh, Angelique Kerber didn't even show up in the data as an 18-year-old. And there aren't very many top women who you can say that about. Most of them are good enough to, to play at least at the top ITF levels uh, by the time they're 17, 18 years old. But Kerber wasn't. So that probably means that Kerber was even worse before that. So if we're trying to project someone who's 17 and stuck at the ITF 10K level, then, I mean... Kerber tells us something, but we also have this whole population of players who never get anywhere. So it's just it's just complicated, and we don't have the stats for that. I mean, that, that just gets a lot more complicated, and no matter where we draw the line, we have to cut off the data set somewhere. It's just it's, it's, it's a really it, potentially misleading selective sample. Yeah, I mean, then you have all of college tennis, and I imagine Isner isn't in the data set until, like, he hardly played a match uh, before 23, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, and yeah, we, we can predict he would have been okay before that since he was so dominant at the college level. But I mean, I have no idea how that translates and, and how to treat his opponents at that level. So, uh, I, I, and I don't think those are particularly easy questions to, to answer without collecting a lot more data, or maybe just forcing players to play a lot more matches so we can get that additional <laughs> that data. seems practical. I was thinking, I mean, you could have ELO or, or UTR probably tries to do this, that tries to put college on the same playing field, but it, it would be also full of um, uncertainty. 
Yeah. And it, it's it's a similar thing you get with other sports that I think if if you are a if you are a talent scout looking at eighteen year old college players, you kind of have an idea who has the potential to take the next step. I mean, you're going to be wrong sometimes, but let's say eighty percent of the time you can tell this guy's going to be a stockbroker and this one has a chance to go be a, an ATP tour player. So th- there's no way to algorithmically do that besides just throw out the bad players. I mean. It, and I think that's kind of what you'd have to do. Like, if you're comparing Isner to other 18, 19, 22-year-old college players, um, I don't know if you should use the entire data set of 22-year-old college players. And even if you did, you wouldn't know how many of them would be playing at age 28 because many of them are off doing non-tennis things as soon as they graduate. So you end up with a... Uh, your sample has problems no matter where you draw the line. Well, you need the stockbroker league just for completeness. You need those results in the ELO ratings. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that that's your task for this week, Carl. And you've got a lot of free time to go investigate these New York City tennis leagues and come back to me with results. I'm on it. Uh, sounds good. So it's a good time to wrap it up. Jeff, just before that, you do, what do you yeah. think of, you know, we, I, I enjoyed that exercise and I was just giving you a hard time about setting me up. I know you wouldn't gotcha me, but um, would it space things out too much if you like post it on, on the blog or on Twitter or just mention on the show, like, here's a thing I want to look into before we start looking into it. Can we talk about what we think we're going to find and what, what our priors are? Yeah, that's a reasonable thing to do. I usually don't have the patience for that. I usually like to dig into a project and work on it until it's done. I haven't done that in this case, so that's a bad example. I could have easily posted this this graph on Twitter last week. Um, but that's not usually the way I work. But but yeah, I think that would be that would be useful to just sort of crowdsource what the conventional wisdom is. I think in in tennis compared to other sports it's not as easy to tell sometimes what the conventional wisdom is. We're kind of doing a selective sample based on whoever the last commentator we got annoyed with was. Um, but maybe maybe people are more sophisticated in their thinking than I'm giving them credit for, or maybe there's, there's some, some angles that I'm not considering. So yeah, something to keep in mind. Um, so we'll wrap it up there. Carl, as usual, thank you for joining me. My pleasure, Jeff. Uh, listeners, hope you will enjoy our next week of international and ATP 250 level clay court tennis. We should be back next week to talk about some of that and look ahead to the Monte Carlo Masters, which is coming up pretty fast on us. So enjoy the week of tennis. Thank you all for listening, and we'll see you next week.